like the Lord our God. Nobody, no one in the universe is like the Lord our God. He's paid our debt and the victory is secure because of the Lord our God. Thank you, choir, Gene, Lisa, Nate. Thank you uh, all for leading us in worship. It's been a good morning of worship already. Nate, did you pick that spirit song because today is what? Pentecost Sunday. Today, Nate is so attuned to what's happening in the Christian world at large. Today is Pentecost Sunday. If we had a red cloth, Ron, we would have hung it on the cross today. But uh, it's a special day. Today is when we commemorate the advent of God the Spirit. God the Spirit who showed up and rushed into the hearts of believers in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing, a special day in the life of our church today. Trey said to reference tongues of fire today, so there you have it, Trey. We, uh, if we see tongues of fire appear on the choir's heads or on your heads, just go with it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a good thing, I promise. We're going to talk about truth and freedom today. Truth and freedom as we look at a wonderful text from John chapter 8. And when we talk about truth these days, you know, truth is kind of a confusing subject, apparently. It shouldn't be, but it is in our culture today. When one of my first sermons here back in October of 2016, I went back and looked it up. I referenced uh, Stephen Colbert, the the late night talk show host on on CBS. Back 13 years ago, he had a show on Comedy Central, and and he had a a segment called The the Word, and, and his word for one week was the word truthiness. Truthiness is a word that that he invented, and it means true-ish, sort of true. You know, the the amount of truthiness that is involved in what someone says is a degree of truthfulness, apparently. He created this word, obviously, to make fun of politicians back in those days who didn't seem to be concerned with actual truth, just truthiness, as they were speaking about things that they wanted to be true. That was in 2005, by the way. So it was a hilarious and pretty insightful bit on the, the Colbert Report, and the New York Times ended up running a, a story on it. And a year later, the folks at Merriam-Webster Dictionary decided truthiness would be the word of the year for 2006, truthiness. You know, just a couple of years ago, a, a politician was being interviewed on, on Meet the Press, and they were asked why someone in their party would lie. Why would they say something that wasn't True, and, and this politician said, no, 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 that guy wasn't lying. He was just giving, what, you remember? Alternative facts. Alternative facts. And the interviewer said, wait, 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 well, alternative facts aren't facts, right? That's, that's just lies, right? If it's alternative facts. It reminded a lot of people of George Orwell's novel, 1984, where he talks about double speak, right, and double think, and being able to hold lies as if they were truth. It's a dangerous thing, isn't it? In our postmodern times, and really philosophers say that we're over this now, that we're moving post-postmodernity now. Uh, but in, in postmodernity, people will simply say, well, you have your truth, and I'll have my truth, and, and you believe what's true for you, and I'll believe what's true for me, and we'll all be happy. You know, that's like saying I have my alternative facts. (laughs) People don't want to hear the truth. So instead, they make up what they believe to be true. They have said things like, well, there is no absolute truth 
Anyway, that sounds really intelligent, you know, like, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth, so don't bother. But it's actually a completely illogical statement, right? Because if I present to you that there is no absolute truth, okay, there is no absolute truth, I'm telling you that as what? As an absolute truth. <laughs> the absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. That's an illogical statement. If something is true with a capital T, then it must be true for you and for me. And we worship the one who is the truth, the way, and the life, as we'll get to John 14, 6 in a few months. <laughs> but it's sad that it has to be said in our culture. But I feel like it's important to say that the truth matters. It matters a great deal. In fact, as Fran Shaka says, this is America. You're free to believe whatever you want to believe, whatever's true for you, and I'll believe what's true for me. And that's fine until you die. Then all that matters is what's true. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about building our lives on the truth. Because if we're not standing on the truth, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we of all people are most to be pitied if we're building our lives on a lie. So let's stand together, if you're able to, in honor of God's word today as I read our text from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 47, about truth and freedom. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. <coughs> you know, to be honest, I've always had a bit of a problem with authority. You know, I've realized in my discipleship journey at this point that it's really a pride issue and ultimately a sin issue, but I really do not like to be told what to do or have to submit myself under the authority of someone else. It's my sinful nature, I know, it's my pride, and some of you can relate to that. I know some of you more than others. I'm, you know, the firstborn child is usually a rule follower. Jude's pretty good with authority, and whenever I try to you know, get Jude to bend the rules. He says, no, we, we don't do that. You know, and that's, that's great. But I don't, I don't like being told what to do. If anyone ever had a right to have a problem with authority, it was Jesus. Jesus alone is the perfect supreme power in all the universe. He has all authority. All authority has been given to me, he says in Acts 1.8. And at this point in John's gospel, the conflict between Jesus Christ and the ruling authority in Jerusalem is, is continuing to ramp up. And once, we get, once again here, we see Jesus confronting a group of religious people who think that they have it all together. You know, they've been preaching the false gospel of I'm okay, you're okay to each other. We're all good. We're Abraham's children. We're fantastic. Jesus comes to show them, you are not fantastic. You are not okay. Jesus comes to explode these lies and the falsehoods because they're not living in the truth. You know, I realized recently when I was lamenting to Trey uh, uh, that, that I'm not as, as young as I used to be and I don't relate to teenagers uh, like I used to. Trey sent me a, a meme of Roy Williams, the head coach for UNC Tar Heels basketball team. He's like 75 or something, and he always wears a suit and tie, and, it's, and he comes and dances with his players in the locker room, these college kids, and he's like, hey, and it says, the meme said, when the senior pastor comes to youth group. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, but I, I, I realized that these, these kids weren't even born when the Matrix came out. The Matrix, classic movie, 1999 is when it came out. You guys, none of y'all were born in, y'all were born in the 2000s. And, and The Matrix is, has been one of my go-to illustrations as a youth minister because it's such an accurate portrayal of the Christian life in so many ways. If you haven't seen it, quick premise for you is that the humans in the future are, are enslaved, they're captive to the robots. Artificial intelligence has run amok. And, and this world that we see and taste and touch and move about in is just an illusion. It's a computer program called The Matrix. And humans are actually asleep in these chambers that robots have built to, to harvest our electric energy. And The Matrix is this program that they use to keep humans pacified, to, to give them a lie that will enable them to peacefully lay there while they harvest our electric energy or something like that. <laughs> 
And a few humans in the movie manage to unplug from the lie of the matrix. They wake up to reality and they go about fighting the robots and seeking to wake all the other humans up so that they can bring everyone into reality. You see where I'm going. It's a wonderful metaphor for the Christian life. This world around us is not our deepest reality. It is not true. We are fed daily lies from the world, messages that we hear day in and day out that are false. If you buy this product, you will be happy and attractive and people will like you. <laughs> if you achieve this thing, then you'll be satisfied at your core. I'm okay and you're okay. The kids are all right. These things are not only false, but they lead to death and destruction ultimately. And just like in the matrix, many people around here prefer to live in the illusion of this world than to enter into the stark reality of whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for Christ's sake will find it. It's a call to come and die. And what these people don't realize is the bondage that they are subjected to by the lies of this world. What appears to be freedom is actually bondage in this world. Jesus comes to explode the falsehoods of this world and to set us free, to set us free indeed. This is what he tells these Jewish leaders here in chapter 8. Look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews that had believed in him. Remember in, in verse 30, the verse before this, many people believed in him. Sounds like a great thing, but, but it's a nominal belief. He says to them, okay, you believe in me? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a word of gospel love extended to these people, but they're not having it. They don't believe they have a need for any more freedom. Look at verse 33. They answer him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? These are highly respected people in the strata of Jewish society. They are the ruling elite class in, in all of Judea. They're, they are seen to have it all together. They're the people that everybody wants to be like. They have a very comfortable life, and yet they don't even realize that they're slaves. Their pride is severely misplaced. Their arrogance is, is deeply uninformed. Of course, they, they know the history of their people, right? That they suffered as slaves under the iron rule of Pharaoh in Egypt, and then generations later, how they were carried off as property by Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonians. But maybe they had forgotten that Israel, the, the geographic region of Canaan, had been dominated by foreign powers for pretty much its entire existence. The Philistines, later the Greeks, and then now the Romans. They are anything but free. They're a colony that is forced to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the taxes that they're paying now. But even on a deeper level than like political slavery or institutional slavery even, they are spiritual slaves. 
You know, our world today is not much different in that spiritual slavery is not as easy to point out as institutional slavery. We often don't realize that we're slaves in our souls until it is too late. You know, every Monday night here in the third floor of the family building at 7 p.m., a group of people gather together at Celebrate Recovery to bear witness to the fact that they were slaves and didn't know it. You know, addiction happens slowly and it takes many forms. And most addicts are in denial as to the nature of their addiction. You know, the clutches of sin don't usually grasp us suddenly, but it happens slowly over time as sin sets in into a habit and an addiction. You know, I've read that if you put a a frog into a pot of water and you heat it gradually, the frog will eventually be boiled alive without resisting. Just something about the way frogs are, are built if you heat it slowly. Such is the nature of sin. But again, the Pharisees believe that not only are they politically free, but they believe that they are spiritually free as well. They're, they're claiming spiritual superiority as well as political superiority. They confidently claim to be Abraham's children in verse 33 and in verse 39. And they assume that because Abraham was reckoned righteous, remember Genesis 11, Genesis 15, because of his faith, right? Adam believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, reckoned to him as righteousness. They believe that because Abraham was reckoned righteous, that by virtue of being his offspring, that they too are reckoned spiritually righteous before the holy God because they share in the covenant promises of the Old Testament as Abraham's descendants. And then in verse 41, the Pharisees reveal this elitism and really racism that underlies their belief that they're okay. They, they take a stab really at the rumors around Jesus's own birth. Oh, he's an illegitimate child. Mary had this baby out of wedlock. And so they say at the end of verse 41, we're not born of sexual morality. We're not born from fornication, not like you not like the Samaritans up north, those half-breeds. We're purebred Israelites from the finest stock, God's own chosen people. Of course we're free spiritually. It's racism. And Jesus calls them out on it. He, He puts a paternity claim on them. Abraham's not your dad. He says, Satan is. He can tell How can you tell that they're Satan's offspring? Because Satan, look at verse 44. Satan's the father of lies. And these guys are happily swimming adrift in a sea of falsehoods. They just live in it. Look at the end of verse 44. When he lies, when Satan lies, he speaks his native tongue. He speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar. You know what Satan means in Hebrew? Satan, the deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. He whispers lies to us all day. All day, Satan says, you're stupid. You're not good enough. You're never going to do this. You're a bad person, right? We have to claim the truth that now for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation and tell Satan to be quiet. 
He's the father of lies, verse 45. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. You don't want to hear the truth. Now, before we judge these Pharisees too harshly, we're kind of picking on them, let's remember that we do this too. That it's very popular today for a person to believe that they're free. Satan tells you, you're free. You're totally free to do whatever you want. While the truth remains that we are a slave. People around here may say, oh, I'm an American. Of course I'm free. I have a a decent job. I'm free. And yet they're not living in reality. They're not living in the truth. Jesus asserts a, a connection here between truth and freedom. You can't have one without the other. The truth shall set you free. Living free means living in reality, living in the truth. And and those that are bound by falsehoods are not free at all. They're slaves to the lies. What does it mean to be a slave? Well, it means to be captive to someone or, or something besides yourself. To be a slave means to be the property that you belong to someone else. It's a, a reprehensible idea. You know, most scholars think that, that what we've done to Native Americans and what we've done to African Americans are America's original sin, right? That slavery is so deeply ingrained into what's wrong with this country. It's a terrible thing. And yet, what Jesus is saying here is that we are all slaves in one way or another. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts it In Romans 6, uh, verse 16, it'll be on the screen. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We belong to whatever it is that we serve. We, We belong to whatever we spend our lives following after serving, chasing. People who chase money, they're slaves to affluence, to power. People who chase their own comfort are slaves to leisure and laziness. We spend our lives trying to become free, but we end up as slaves to one thing or another. Many people think that they're finally obtaining freedom as they depart from God's word and God's ways, but the reality is that they're about to enter the greatest bondage that they've ever known. That might sound terrible, but there's good news. The gospel is that when we give our lives, when we chase after one who is worth giving our lives to, that then we become free that our lives then won't be spent in vain chasing something that enslaves us to death, but enslaves us to life. Look at what Paul says in the very next verse in Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have now become slaves of righteousness. Praise God. You see, we often buy that lie that that Satan is, is whispering to us about what freedom really is. 
And then we buy the other lie that he's telling us about what bondage really is. We get them conflated all the time. There's a great song called Freedom by Andy Gullihorn that illustrates this point perfectly. I, I, I may have shared it before, but listen to this. Every summer they load the car and drive up to the mountains, a family tradition going on 15 years. She was the oldest and the only one not laughing, her mind a million miles away somewhere. Her parents always gave her everything she wanted until all she wanted was to get away. So she ran off with some guy she knew from high school. They'd stay out all night, paint the town and say, so this is freedom. So this is what it's like to get behind the wheel. This is freedom. I used to wonder, now I know the way it feels. This is freedom. Just three years later, he was way out of the picture, but he left her with two little boys. They lived off welfare checks to put food on the table. At night, you'd hear her crying, picking up the toys. So this is freedom. So this is what it's like to get behind the wheel. This is freedom. I used to wonder, now I know the way it feels. Then the bridge says, it wasn't what she hoped for. All those dreams were only lies. Only lies. She could take it as a curse or she could look through different eyes. Every summer, they load the car and drive up to the mountains. A modern day family in a minivan. She can hear the children laughing in the back seat with each passing mile she understands. So this is freedom. So this is what it's like to get behind the wheel. This is freedom. I used to wonder, now I know the way it feels. See, our, our enemy doesn't want us to know the truth, does he? The girl in the song bought into two lies as a teenager. She believed that her family and their way of life was bondage. And she believed that staying out all night with this guy was freedom. But both were lies. Only when she began to embrace her parents' ways, God's ways that she was raised in, did she begin to understand what freedom really is again. So what's the path to freedom? How do we unplug from the matrix of this world and live truly free indeed? Again, Jesus doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. He, he tells us clearly. In verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is clear. Abiding in his word is the path to freedom. If we will abide in God's word instead of abiding in the lies of this world, then God's word will progressively shape us and teach us what the truth is, and we will then be able to walk into reality. I love the way RVG Tasker, you know you're a scholar if you have four names. This is a, a British guy who wrote a commentary on John in 1960. I love the way he says it in his commentary on this passage. He says, true discipleship, Discipleship's one of our five purposes here. It's what we're emphasizing all year long. True discipleship means abiding in his word, i.e. welcoming it, 
being at home in it and living with it so continuously that it becomes part of the believer's life, a permanent influence and stimulus in every fresh advance in goodness and holiness. That is a beautiful picture of discipleship. Abiding in Christ's word, being at home in it, welcoming it, living with it. So what is Christ's word? Are we just talking about the Bible? Let's be clear. What do we mean when we say Christ's word? It's, it's sort of the Bible. The Bible reveals Christ to us. It is God's written self-revelation to us, but it's more than that. Again, Tasker says Christ's word is indistinguishable from Christ himself. Christ is the word. To abide in his word is therefore to abide in him. In September, Trey's gonna preach on John 15, where God says, you are the, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit and I will abide in you. So he says to abide in Christ's word is therefore to abide in him. To, I love this, to be always within earshot of his voice. And when a believer abides in Christ, Christ abides in him. And Christ's life invigorates and sustains the believer's life. This is genuine discipleship. Following Christ, becoming more like Christ, means abiding in Christ's word, abiding in Christ and allowing Christ to abide in us. That's so good. It's about remaining within earshot of Christ's voice always, preparing our hearts, room for Christ to come and fill us more fully. Then we can be free from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of the lies of this world, and live freely both in this life and the next. You know, I love a good barbecue restaurant. I love barbecue. I love to, to eat. And Nashville's quickly becoming a, a, a good town for barbecue. There was an article in Tennessee and saying we're better than Memphis. And that was an objective. You, sorry, Craig. I don't know if you, okay. Yeah, I know. I know. Martin's is good, man. Have you been to, it's so good. You know, I, all these places around here like Martin's, they, they, they have smokers and stuff, but they're usually outside of the restaurant, thank you, so you don't walk into a smoke-filled restaurant. But there's a, a place in Birmingham called Dreamland. Y'all been to Dreamland Barbecue, all you Birmingham natives? Yeah, I see Anna back there, you know. The original I hear in Tuscaloosa is even better. But this restaurant, when you walk in, they have uh, open pit, like charcoal barbecue pits with like racks of ribs just laying on them in the restaurant. And it is smoky. And it smells amazing, I think, of course. But inevitably, as you leave the restaurant and go to wherever your place of business may be or go to visit someone, your clothes, every fiber of your hair, every part of you has soaked in the smell of charcoal ribs so deeply that for about four hours, there's no denying, you pretty much need to change clothes and take a shower or you are not going to be able to lie about where you've been at all because you will reek of barbecue. I think that that's the way dwelling with Christ should be in our lives. When we spend time abiding in God's word, when we spend quality time dwelling in scripture, 
with Jesus Christ in the text, then we soak in the aroma of Christ in our very core. It lingers on us, shapes us, and invigorates us and compels us, as Tasker says. His truth permeates to our core. It's a process, gradually, gradually, as we're led by the Holy Spirit in this process until we begin to operate out of that truth instead of being compelled by the lies of the enemy. And everywhere we go, we then become a walking embodiment of the truth. We can't help but expose the lies of the darkness. So the closing question for us today is this. Are you free today or are you in bondage? Can't have it both ways. Maybe you've experienced that initial freedom of being set free from sin by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and the efficacy of his work on the cross to redeem you from the sins of your life. That's great. If you've done that, then you are free from that bondage. That's the first taste of freedom that comes from acknowledging the bondage and the power of sin. And, and to acknowledge that only Jesus can deliver us, that we are desperately in need of a Savior, and then personally receiving Christ by faith and repentance. But others of us today might find that we've been liberated from sin, but we still, if we had to pick free or bondage, bondage is still the best word to describe where we are. Maybe that's because we've returned to our old ways. Maybe we've become desensitized to the Holy Spirit. Maybe we've become anesthetized to the Holy Spirit's touch in our lives, to the power and truth that Christ brings us by dwelling in him. Maybe we have felt the power of God depart from our lives and we're walking in frailty. What we need to do today then is repent. Return to the Lord with all of our hearts if we want to experience the breakthrough of freedom in our lives today, to throw off the shackles that so easily entangles, as Hebrews 12 says, let us commit to knowing the word of God, the logos, Jesus Christ. How do we know him better? Start with this book. Get in the word daily. If you're not abiding in the word of God, then you will not grow spiritually. If you want to experience that freedom today, commit to knowing God's word and not just knowing it, but obeying it, doing it, living it out after you know it. Then we will be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word that we hear from Jesus himself as he gives us a path to true freedom. God, we are all slaves. We, we confess today that none of us are free. We don't want to be like the arrogant Pharisees who are hypocrites. We all are slaves to something, whatever it is that we're serving. And God, we, we fall captive to the idols of this world all the time. God, we, we get jealous over material things. We get angry. God, we, we devalue relationships. God, we are still so desperately in need of your word to come and abide in us and shape us in a way that we can live freely in this world. Help us not to love the things of this world, 
but that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. God, I pray that you would give us a passion for your word. Stir within us a holy passion. Let your spirit be fanned into flame within our hearts so that we can be lovers of the word and doers of the word. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now as we repent and say, Jesus, we love you more than things of this world. We're going to sing, my Jesus, I love thee above all else. If you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've never done that for the first time, I invite you to come forward and be free for the first time from the bondage of sin and receive the free grace that Jesus gives us. If you need to join Woodmont Baptist Church and you're ready to become a member here, we believe in membership and church membership and pledging your time, your talent, your treasure to this body of Christ, this family of faith. We're not a perfect family of faith, but neither are you. And we invite you to come and be a part of this journey that we're on together. Maybe you've never been baptized and you're ready to follow Christ's example in believer's baptism and, and become uh, baptized by immersion in believer's baptism. If that's you today, then I invite you to come forward. If you just wanna pray with somebody, Brad, Trey, I invite y'all to come up. Jane, if you'll come up here. If you want to pray with one of our prayer warriors today or just pray at the altar, I know that people, I, we all need prayer. I need prayer. If you just want to come and have someone pray over you uh, during this time, maybe you have a big decision that you're wrestling with. Maybe there's some weight on you, some worry that you have, and you just want someone to pray for you. Come forward now and pray with one of our prayer team members. Let's stand and sing, my Jesus, I love thee above all.